You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. The day I went missing was the day I died. Five years in hell forged me into a weapon which I used to honor a vow I made to my father who sacrificed his life for mine. In his final moments, he told me the truth, that our family's wealth had been built on the suffering of others, that he failed our city, and that it was up to me to save it and right his wrongs. But to do that without endangering the people closest to me, I have to be someone else. I have to be something else. Welcome, everyone, to Trek FM's local watering hole where I'm your host, Matthew Rushing, and you have failed this show. That's right, you have failed. I'm just, I'm just kidding, guys. I'm sorry. Oh I apologize. Uh, I got really excited. Uh, been watching way too much Arrow, apparently, recently. Um, you have not failed this show. You have done exactly what you're supposed to do, and you have tuned in, and so congratulations. Um, and I hope you got something great from Ruby, because we do have a really fun show for you uh, this week. Before we get to that, I do want to introduce who's joining me in the 602. First and foremost, it is great to have back here in the 602 Club, Alice from Educating Geeks. Alice, welcome back to the show. Hi. Thank you so much. Glad to join you here at the bar. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm glad you could be here too um, because, well, it would have just felt weird if Daniel and I were the only one talking about Stephen Amell's abs. Indeed, I understand y- that. Yeah, so I'm <laughs> glad that um, we, we we have a lady so it feels a little less strange. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Daniel, it's it's great to have you back in the 602 to talk some Arrow. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad to be here. And, you know, honestly... If if we if you wanted to do a separate podcast just about Stephen Amell's abs, I would actually volunteer for that one as well. So there you go, supplemental podcast about Stephen Amell's abs, mm-hmm. yeah. maybe coming to you soon. Uh, we might have to make that the Trek FM After Dark show right, because right. who knows where that one would go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, as you can tell, we are here to talk about Arrow, and we are going to start going through some of these shows like this. Uh, through the seasons and we wanted to start here with season one with Arrow and I wanted to kind of start with you guys uh, you know returning to the and remembering the beginning of this show because you know I grew up uh, watching all of Smallville I remember when it started um, you know that was kind of the first my first introduction I, I kind of missed the Lois and Clark uh, run you know it just I there was something about it I just I love Superman but that just didn't seem like my thing but you know the whole idea of doing Superman as a teenager that it wasn't going to be about him flying around and saving it just it was a whole new take and uh, that show ran for 10 years apparently if you're on the CW and you're a show like that I mean We've got Supernatural now. What is it? It's an eleventh season or yeah. something. Tenth? It's about yeah. to break Tenth. Smallville's record because Smallville yeah. now has the record for like super, you know, best, uh, longest running sci-fi television show ever, and 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 Supernatural's going to break it. So, so I, I'm just wondering for you guys, you know, back when it was three seasons ago now, three years ago now, that 
Arrow first started, where were you kind of in in your state of mind that made you be like, oh, I want to tune in to to this show? Because it it for me, it kind of came out of nowhere. You know, we didn't have any other superhero shows on. You know, this wasn't a thing. And Arrow kind of bursts on the scene. Um, and I mean, I knew I was going to tune in, but I kind of wanted to hear what brought you guys in, Alice. Uh, I'm a uh, I am a longtime lover of the Green Arrow comic, um, and so I, I was excited to see what they were going to do with that. I thought I would, you know, I have many many uh, editions of uh, Green Arrow going back to the 40s. Actually, obviously, I don't own any first editions or anything like they're all collected works. But I really love that character. He's probably my favorite DC character. So I was just excited to see what they were going to do with it and you know how closely they were going to follow some of the tent poles of the canon and how they were going to you know come away from that and what was going to be the same what was going to be different and all that kind of stuff so because I was already a fan of the character that's why I wanted to tune in what about you Daniel you know I'm glad you brought up Smallville because um and maybe you didn't reach this point Matthew I don't know if you watched the whole run or not but uh season seven I want to say or season eight they introduced uh, Oliver Queen Green Arrow as they a character did, yeah. on that show, yeah. And um, I mean, you know, I was aware that he existed beforehand, but not interested in the character. And honestly, even after Smallville, was like, meh, this guy is running around with a bow and arrow. I don't really care that much, honestly. Uh, actually, I, I was like Hawkeye. I was like Hawkeye, right? Exactly. I was actually a little upset because um, Lois Lane was going for him on that show and that really irritated me because I really wanted her anyways that doesn't matter it has no bearing on this <laughs> we'll do all. our Smallville show yes it day. does actually <laughs> <laughs> um, so I remember hearing like once Smallville was coming to an end that they were thinking about doing something else and then they settled on Arrow and I was like um, I kind of dismiss Hawkeye for the same reasons that I dismiss Green Arrow I just think that they don't in that kind of a universe they they and Hawkeye directly addresses this in Age of Ultron where he says, you know, this is silly. This is ridiculous. I shouldn't be. I have a bow and arrow and I'm shooting robots and stuff. Um, so I always dismiss these characters out of hand. And so I didn't really have any interest at the time when it first came out. Uh, but then it was actually starting to build a lot of really positive buzz. I remember reading article after article like, why Arrow is the best show you're not watching. And like, this show is amazing. This is great. Uh, so I was actually, I think I caught up midway through season two. I was when I finally wa- binge-watched the whole first season. So I actually did ignore the show uh, for, for the majority of the first season. Well, I, I remember I I watched all of Smallville, and I really loved uh, the use of Green Arrow on the show. Um, I thought he was a nice foil for, for Clark on the show. I loved the, just the whole dynamic. I mean, in the end, they kind of created their own Justice League, and... It was so much fun, and, and very much what they're doing with all of the DC shows now. They're creating their own Justice League on TV, and, and Smallville did it, you know, uh, in, in that 10-year run. Um, but when this came out, I was really excited because, you know, we had had Nolan's Batman, and for me, that really reignited a love of, of what superheroes could be, you know, in media, you know, it, um, for me, that was the thing I think that really got me excited again. I, and, and, you know, um, I, I loved Iron Man two, uh, as well, not Iron Man two, <laughs> but Iron Man as well as Batman, uh, and the dark Knight trilogy that they did. And, um, 
So those things put together, you know, when I saw that Arrow was going to be coming out, I thought this is the same, you know, network that gave me Smallville. I loved Smallville for 10 years. I stuck with it. I ended up feeling like I was paid off. So I'm super pumped that they're going to do another one. And uh, in the end, I mean, what I got was a pseudo Batman on TV, you know, and and um, they even talk about that. They're freely open with that on the uh, extras. You know, if you watch the Blu-rays these days, look, we kind of took some of that idea of Batman Begins and basically are doing that with the Arrow character, which, you know, it's always fun to kind of get the year zero or the year one uh, of a character. And, and so bringing this person in too that people have in the background of their minds but may not be as familiar with I think was genius as well because you know with Smallville they did this wonderful thing where they they took the character and they made the DC universe into their image what they wanted their show to be and each of the DC shows I think has really done that successively uh, and they've done it well. You know, Flash is doing the same thing with the Flash. Arrow does the same thing with the Green Arrow. I'm pretty sure that Supergirl is going to do the same thing. They they amalgamate the character from all the different personalities that they've been in ca- comics for, you know, 70 years or whatnot, and they put their version on screen. And I just, I love that. And to me... I thought Arrow was the greatest show ever. I mean, that's how I felt, you know, when I uh, throughout the the first season. Um, if people were watching it, I was like, "You need to be watching Arrow. It's so good." And people would give me that, being like, "Dude, it's just a comic book show," you know. But <laughs> and then people would watch it and they'd be like, "Oh, that's really good," you know. So, it yeah, it it just blew my mind when it came on TV because we didn't we really didn't have anything like this, you know, three four years ago. This this wasn't what we were doing and. Um, I think in the end, what they're able to do on the show with their CW budget is pretty incredible. I mean, every once in a while, the show can could look cheesy, but that's just because, you know, you can't afford ILM to do your graphics, you know, and, and I just you know, you let that go. So, well, that's and that's actually one of the brilliant things about doing a character like Green Arrow, where you don't necessarily need to do crazy, super awesome special effects. Basically, what you need is a guy with washboard abs sliding down, you know, a zip line, and and there you go. There's there's your special effects. It's it's not like someone like Superman who, or even the Flash, which we get now, where you know to to start out with that kind of grounded character, that Batman esque character, I think makes it uh, it puts it in a, in an area that makes it easier to kind of establish that kind of a universe in. I would definitely agree. I think it's interesting that you you said uh, it's great to have a year one uh, on a character because if you there is a Green Arrow graphic novel called Year One uh, by Diggle, which I think is a nod uh, to that character name, um, which is essentially where they pulled a, a lot of the look and the feel and the storyline for the the island scenes from. But you know, as as we all laugh about how gorgeous Stephen Amell's abs are. One of the things that I really enjoyed about season one, especially, and I remembered rewatching it, uh, was he gives this really the reason why I was happy with the show primarily when it first started and continued to watch it was because of the performance that he gives. Yes, he's great to look at, but he gives this really beautifully subtle, very nuanced 
performance as as Oliver Queen, and I really, really uh, enjoyed that and was drawn in by his his performance. And really, that's the main reason why I stuck with the show initially. Well, and I think you just hit on something that is really important about this show, is that not only are the writers crafting one show, but this is two shows in one. Every week, they're giving you the island show, and they're giving you what's happening now show. And they have to find a way to make all of that work and make it feel realistic make it feel like it all fits make it feel like everything is working in concert together and that they have a plan and that's gotta i mean seriously if the lost writers had written written like this and this was the mystery of the island and lost i would have been much happier i mean the fact that they understand that they're crafting a larger story and seem to be hammering out these details before they go into the season this is an this is a massive amount of work to put in and create really two different shows every year. And as we will talk in future episodes, you know, in season two, um, it's not just the island, but it's it you know you start to move to other places that that Oliver has traveled when he was gone, and so it gets really complicated really fast. And the fact that they can keep track of this, they must have the most massive Excel spreadsheet on the planet. Uh, that are the most amazing wall flowchart that's probably like a mile long because connecting or they just look like those you know how like superheroes they always like to do those nice collages on the wall with all the string attached everywhere that doesn't really make any sense to the viewer pretty sure that's what the writer's room for arrow looks like <laughs> them them are serial killers one or the other yeah <laughs> and and i would have to say matthew i do believe that it is the doctor who showrunners that have the largest excel spreadsheet yeah. for any show Just that's probably that true yeah. <laughs> yeah you know especially in in this first season here um i i am not one that that likes the, these kind of jumping around kind of things I thought it was done incredibly well. Like I was actually just as in, because it's difficult to create drama in a situation where you know the character has already escaped, is already out of this situation now. But that's not what it's about. It's not like, oh my, oh my goodness, is Oliver going to make it? It's more about what is it about this experience that shaped him into the person that he returned as, and. Like I said, especially in that first season, it's so well crafted and so well. The themes are so well interwoven episode by episode by what's going on in the island and then what's going on back in uh, in Star City. Starling I was going to say Central City, and I knew that wasn't right. Um, <laughs> uh, so it, it's it's really awesome, and uh, I really was actually surprised to find, except for, and I think it's very important that we mention this, the god-awful wig that they make Stephen Amell wear <laughs> when he is on the island. Like, it is so bad. Like, it, oh my goodness. It looks like he's wearing... Uh, it's just the worst. Maybe it's it can worst. have its own show. It like, probably can. Its own supplemental where we just talk about how bad the wig is. It's like... <laughs> although... It- it's bad, but I will say that it did succeed in making his face look chubby, which was appropriate. That is because very true. true. That is yeah. true. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that I think is is really um, so successful about the show. And the, the thing that was so... In, no, no, no. That's so <laughs> okay. important about the show is what you were talking about, is that the flashbacks, if you're going to do flashbacks in a show, 
you need to work it in from the very beginning because otherwise flashbacks tend to be a very terrible writing device. It is a horrible crutch to go back and kind of retcon yourself to explain a situation so much of the time. But the thing that I've loved about what DC did from the very beginning was to say, this is two different shows in in some ways. That's informing you how our character gets to this point. So it makes, like you said, what's happening on the island so paramount because it's the refining fire for Oliver Queen. You know, what makes him who he is when he goes home. Uh, and in some ways, too, it causes a lot of the problems when he comes home as well. You know, so it's it's not like he just became Superman uh, in the you know, Fortress of Solitude for 12 years and comes out, you know, the, the the consummate hero. You know, Oliver comes out of this like the one of the most damaged, disturbed people, uh, even more so, I think, than what we see sometimes with Batman, you know, uh, in his experience. Uh, Oliver has a worse time of this, I think, than it, even, say, like Bruce Wayne in the Nolan universe, you know, because uh, he chooses that life. He chooses to go to those places. Oliver Queen did not choose to get stuck on this island because of his mother, you know? So, I mean, we'll talk about that later, but I, that's what, yeah, this is what makes this so successful though, is that they really set the foundation for creating this show. So when they go back to the island to tell you something, it doesn't feel like there, it's just a crutch to do it. You know, it, no, this is the fabric of the show. And I think that's really smart, and they're really using that too with the Flash as well, um, because they've learned that if you're going to do flashbacks, make sure that the audience will buy it as realistic, and not do the whole, you know, I hate to knock Shield, but when Shield does the flashbacks, it's like, oh, you guys are just retconning yourself right now, so bad, it's terrible. Yeah, they do a nice job, I feel, in the use of the flashbacks also to to tie it very specifically to a choice or a decision that Oliver Queen is about to make. So you'll see him in a situation talking to a character on the verge of having to make a decision, uh, and then they'll take you back to something that's going to form or shape what you're about to see him, you know, the decision he's, he's about to make. And it's, I'm so glad that you mentioned S.H.I.E.L.D. Because, right, they started at the same time, right? S.H.I.E.L.D. came on one season later. So Arrow was in season two, and then S.H.I.E.L.D. came on. So, I mean, they're very close, though. Because I, in my choice between watching Arrow and and watching S.H.I.E.L.D., one of the things, I I picked Arrow. uh, And one of the reasons why I did that is because Arrow was grounding me as you guys have already said in this very specific world um, that was created and those were the characters we were caring about Uh, as we'll talk about in future shows they start introducing more and more carries but shield to me very much felt like um, I don't know what words I'm allowed to use on this show Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, felt very uh, self-fulfilling back rubbing uh congratulatory uh self-congratulatory for the marvel universe and that that they kept pulling in 
you know, characters from the movie and characters from somewhere else that kept causing me to not care as much about the core team that was there. I was like, tell me the story about these people and make me care about them. I don't care if Lady Sif comes in. I don't care if Loki comes in. I don't care about those characters in this universe. I want to care about these characters. And Man, I don't think Marvel did that it. very well. <laughs> crushed it. Oh my gosh. You just said exactly how I feel about S.H.I.E.L.D. Because I, I they keep taking away my desire to care for the characters on TV because they keep showing me how relevant they really are to the actual Marvel universe because the movies happen and then the TV show happens. And even Joss Whedon said, we don't really pay attention. So, you know, it's like, well, okay. Anyway, back to Arrow uh, uh, yes. and I, how I, great it is. I do. Well, I one slight criticism, and, and this isn't... It only becomes apparent uh, on a rewatch or probably later on in the seasons, but... Uh, while I do like the parallels of what's going on, uh, like Alice was just saying about, like, oh, there's a decision he has to make, and then it flashes back to uh, uh, a relevant situation on the island. Um, once they go back to that well over and over again, it seems really convenient that chronologically all of his experiences mm. prepared him for all of the same experiences chronologically when he returned. And it's not so bad in this in this season, but you can see the potential for the writers to kind of abuse that to be like, oh, now he's has now he's involved in this super specific situation. I certainly hope the next thing that he has in his memory from five years ago is this exact same situation where he could have learned something valuable. And uh, it, you know, it just a slight criticism in the first season. It's not too bad because they didn't abuse it so much but you can kind of see the seeds of that kind of abuse that takes place a little bit you're right and yeah, that is one too. of the th- one of the things that in the, the the other seasons is kind of interesting because there are some times where actually the island show or the away show has more play than what's happening because that story is a little bit more important at that moment which is always really interesting and so yeah they they i think that's that's where I just really want to give these writers credit, especially here in this first season, is they are walking one of the hardest tightropes to do in television, which is to tell a story like this, and that they are having to tell two different show stories and make it seem like it's one at the same time, and not do what you just said, Daniel, which is make you just pull out of the show and be like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, right. uh, be- and... and so I think that's where we're giving them credit, though, that for the most part throughout even all the seasons that I've seen through three, I don't feel like that's happening. And it's what's kept me going back over and over to Arrow and, and sticking with it, even when, you know, just as every show, there's a couple of stinkers every season. It happens to every show. Um, and so you, especially even when you're doing, you know, 22, 23 episodes, it's just, it's going to happen. So I was just going to, I was just going to say that, um, I believe it's Andrew Kreisberg, who's one of the showrunners Mm -hmm. who, who also worked on Fringe, which also had that world duality aspect to it. And so perhaps some of his experiences working on Fringe helped inform him to be able to, to do that well on this show as well. Oh yeah, I would I would think so, and especially kind of seeing the things that worked well for them on Fringe, and maybe the things that didn't as well, to be able to 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 pull that all together. Uh, I think I think you're really right. So, well, you had kind of touched on it, Alice, and, and I kind of want to just kind of dive into the actual characters and the people that we have playing with them, because I I think this became the main strength 
of the show wasn't just the storylines that we got, but it was actually the actors. Because, as we said, some of the episodes might kind of be stinkers as an episode, but if you have good actors, they can pull you through. Um, My wife and I are watching uh, Friday Night Lights right now, and in the fourth season, season two's really not very good. The the writer's strike happened to them, and some of the storylines just... Um, but the strength of the actors still made you care, which is a really hard thing. So first and foremost, our Oliver Queen, our Arrow, Stephen Amell, does he pull it off? Does he make you believe that this is the Green Arrow? Or excuse me, just the Arrow. <laughs> or the Vigilante, or the Hood, whatever we want to call him tonight. We we, we should actually distinguish... Well, the, well, the real... Oliver Queen, please stand up. <laughs> I actually, I actually think that's an important distinction because I actually kind of feel like I don't know if they have an end game in mind, but um, either the writers are planning on the final episode, him taking up that moniker, or some really massive event. And I think that's actually kind of important. Like you said, this, if this if this is a, a year zero or a year one kind of a story, um, this idea that he's he, you know, he doesn't take this name. It's just given to him, but eventually he will take ownership of it and he will become that character is something that's super interesting to me. That's that's a bit of, a, of an aside. And real quick, um, I will tell you that uh, the first person that I ever heard that watched this show was my sister. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a 34-year-old mother of two, and she's like, you've got to watch this show. It's so awesome. And I'm like, all right, all right. It's, she's, she's like, it's Arrow. And this guy has got like ten abs, and uh, I'm like, all right, I, that's not really a selling point for me, but I'll check it out if it's that, if it's that good. Um, but no, no, I mean, besides the physicality that he brings to the role, which is obviously extremely important uh, for you to believe it. Uh, no, I think he's a, I think he's a great actor. Uh, and as a side, a little side note, very ins- excited to see him as Casey Jones in the next yeah, two Ninja Turtles. He's too good looking to be Casey Jones. But he's, but he's behind a mask the whole time. So it doesn't All matter. right. Whatever. And he's going to he's gonna kiss M- Megan Fox. So, I mean, who cares at that point? Like, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, I do think that he gives a, a a wonderfully subtle performance most of the time. Just like you you pointed out, Matthew, he's he's not perfect all the time. Nobody is, and there are definitely moments where he isn't quite working for me as much as I'd like him to. But good ninety ninety five percent of the time, he I'm he's totally believable to me as that as that character. And I think his immediate um, Scooby Gang in Felicity Smoke and Diggle. Uh, also put in uh, very good performances, uh, especially, um, oh my God, what is her name? Uh, Emily, Emily, somebody, Emily somebody. Beckett Richards. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> who plays who plays Felicity? I think, and I, yeah, I, had, I, know. I knew, I knew <laughs> nothing of her beforehand. And to me, it's one of those moments where this character comes in and I don't even know if she was really intended to or meant to become such a pivotal person in the show but comes in and does such a great job that you know uh, America fell in love with her you know kind of a thing because she really just puts in such a great performance she's she yeah I have such a nerd crush on on her like oh my goodness and uh, I I think I, I I imagine that you're right I bet you there's a backstory where like she came in for that one episode and like that chemistry was there and she was so good for that role 
like oh man like to me she's she's my favorite character on the show by far there's there's not even a there's not even a second place that's even close to her she's so awesome well there's nothing like felicity sticking her foot in her mouth five times in, <laughs> in like three seconds that, every time well, she meets yeah. somebody new every oh, single it's, time it's, it's awesome. awesome yeah she <laughs> is i'm with you daniel she is really one of my favorite parts of the show and the way that she plays off Steven, you know, they have such great chemistry in that they, you know, he's the straight man and, and she's just the, the bumbling geek. And and of course, she also has that crush on him because of those aforementioned abs. And uh, I mean, we all kind of have a crush on him because of those abs. But anyway, um, it yeah, it, it just works so well. And, and I think one of the things that I really love about Steven is the fact that when he's playing younger Oliver in those situations on the island, he really plays it so well. I mean, he is that jackass that just like he's he's the 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 playboy that could care less. Everybody serve me. Everything is about me. You know, and I mean, he's the epitome of everything that's wrong in America about people, you know, at that point. And to watch him slowly be, you know, beaten into what he becomes every time. I mean, and how hard must that be for Stephen Amell to play that? Because anytime they jump back in time, he has to play that like he did the last time he was in a scene during that time period. And, you know, so that's a really hard thing to do. And the fact that he just nails it almost every time, like you said, Alice, there's sometimes where it's not perfect, but Almost every time, that's good enough, you know. And I, yeah. I just rewatched the show with my wife, season one and two, and I was really picking up on just what he was laying down. It, it I was impressed again by just how well he does. And I think you guys are right. The triumvirate of him and Dave Ramsey as John Diggle and Emily Bett Richards as Felicity Smoke, it's really those three, you know, that trinity that we care about so much. And how they've all grown together. And I love that John Diggle is... His conscience. Yeah, the Jiminy Cricket for Mm -hmm. the Arrow, you know? And the ways in which, too, that him and sometimes Oliver switch places with that, you know, when it comes to the Deadshot stuff. And Oliver has to kind of be that for him. And the way they're they're basically the the proverb of iron sharpening iron so one man sharpens another that's that's diggle and that's that's oliver i love that and um of i course, think Felicity's it's really successful. the whetstone that is true yeah um and the fact that she's there i mean without her they they wouldn't still be a team you yeah, know for sure. that's what makes her so pivotal um i love that scene where she goes you know after they have their spat their bromance spat. And uh, she's, she goes to Diggle's apartment and basically, you know, apologizes for Oliver. Uh, and I, I I love that that scene. And yeah. Diggle's response is, well, I need to hear it from him, essentially. <laughs> you know, like, you're, you're not good. I loved that whole dynamic when that, uh, that, that bromance spat happened. I really enjoyed that. What did you guys think about the Borg Queen for a mother? Because <laughs> Susanna Thompson played the Borg Queen in the Dark Frontier uh, mini movie that they did with Voyager, because they couldn't get Alice Krieger to to be back, and so Susanna Thompson had filled in the role. And 
I remember the first time that I saw her on the show, I was like, that's the Borg Queen, which immediately told me there's something that's going to be wrong about her <laughs> from the very beginning because I was like, she could not be a good mother. <laughs> there were times for me uh, where, and, and I, I don't know if it was her or the writing or some combination thereof, but a, a little bit of her uh, stum and drum around, you know, not for my children. I'm only doing it for my children. There, there were times where I, I, I was not buying that from, from her delivery at all. And I was just like, ugh, rolling my eyes kind of a thing. Um, so I don't know, as a, as a performance and as a character, that, that wasn't one of the stronger ones for me personally. You know, it... it... Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I never, I never really landed on like where I thought about her. I, I, I kind of was always like, she's there. She's an element of the show. I guess she knows things that I should care about, but I don't really care so much about what she thinks about things, if that makes any sense. Uh, she was never compelling enough to be really that interested in, um, other than the fact that, hey, I'm Oliver's mom, and I was also at in some point involved with these people, and then it's you know, my husband died. I don't know. I just, uh, yeah, I, not, not, not exactly the, the best character of the show, I would say. I liked that once I found out that John Barrowman, who plays Malcolm Woo-hoo. Merlin, of course, also Captain Jack Hartness from Doctor oh. Who. Face of both. Um, and I, uh-huh. well, one, I love that he is just maniacally evil here, and you get none of that Captain Jack Hartness feel. It's just like, and what I loved is it, when they went together, you know, him and Moira, you know, when you realize what she's been up against, you under, I did understand, okay, she is worried for her kids and their life, you know, um, because he will kill anybody. He doesn't care, you know, um, and uh, so it was it was an interesting thing. I, I don't I don't know. I I personally like Susanna Thompson most of the time on the show. Um, I, th- I think sometimes that's a little bit too melodramatic, um, and, and she plays it a little bit more l- like that sometimes, but on a whole, I, everything about the show and all of the actors, they work so well together that when one of them isn't like at the top of their game, I feel like the other person in the scene is usually helping bring it up. And, you know, so I, you know, John Barrowman is just fantastic and he made, a great first year villain um, because especially too, I mean, he has the connections with everybody there with Tommy, the best friend, you know, being his father and all of this and them having grown up together um, as families. I just, I love that they chose that storyline because I think um, one, it works and two, he just nails it. Yeah. I enjoyed him as a villain and I, I think that my enjoyment of him, as you mentioned, is somewhat colored by the fact that he, he, you know, acts and plays a character so different from, you know, the beloved and charming and hysterical Captain Jack Harkness that, you know, his performance stands out, I think, for me or anyone who has enjoyed Captain Jack. Um, as who so hasn't different enjoyed you're Captain like, Jack? Good job, I mean. man. Like, great acting. <laughs> like, you're not a one-trick pony. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> For some reason in my head, I, 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 I compare uh, John Barrowman and Nathan Fillion. And I don't know what it is about them, um, but I, I, I kind of see them as, uh, I don't know, um, you know, kind of the same people in a lot of ways. I don't know what it is. Like they play 
geek culture icons and they're both charming as hell and they yeah, both funny just, yeah and they're funny and they can just to me like they could do anything i mean like it's hard to compare merlin with um captain hammer um but they both play a villain and they both do it really really well and i like i i it was just so i just feel like there's nothing that john barrowman could do where i wouldn't be like okay i'm on board you know <laughs> i'm totally I, you, you've sold me a thousand years ago man you can do whatever you want <laughs> well, and he only continues to get more interesting as the seasons move on, too, which is true. makes for just a fantastic character as well, is that they don't just make him one note, and that's something you can really do with your villains, and, and I mean, gosh, uh, Manu Bennett, who plays Slade Wilson, um, the fact that... You know, we don't know anything he's going to be in season two when we're watching this. But man, that dude is awesome. I mean, as a Australian security uh, secret service dude, I mean, he just I don't want to mess with that guy. I'm, I think the term is, is bad ass. <laughs> yeah, he is bad to the bone. But isn't, uh, isn't so. he just in season two? Right? Oh, Am I? Uh, he's in season one and two. Okay, yeah. I t- I'm yeah. sorry. I, I'm sorry. I, I knew this was gonna that this was gonna happen. It was gonna mix in my head. So, yeah, yeah. He's the he's the guy. Oh, who he was begins... nice. He was super nice in the beginning. Yes, right? yes, yes, yes. Exactly. He's the one who begins his training essentially. Right on right. the island. And if the show didn't have enough abs already, now we yeah, have again. extra abs to add on to the abs that we already have. Yeah, pretty much all the men on that show have great abs. Exactly. Well, and then, of course, you know, we have um, Shadow on the island, which I don't know who didn't fall in love with Shadow, too, because she was so amazingly awesome. Uh, I mean, this, I just have to say, Arrow, I think, is kind of rife with really strong female characters um, that they, they don't always end up in the forefront. But I feel like they, they never let off just being like the damsels in distress all the time. Or, I mean, and and if they are in the beginning, they're always growing towards something different. You know, even like Felicity and her, just how she grows in this first season, you know, and she becomes even more involved with what they do and so integral to what they do that if there was no Felicity, they can't do what they do. You know, when they try to do it without her, it usually ends pretty badly. Um, yeah, she's so, like the she's like the mystique of the Marvel universe. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I just I love that. Um, what did you guys think of um, Thea and and um, Laurel Lance, especially in this first season? Oh boy! I silent. Should I just insert crickets oh, there? I, okay. Yeah, so I, I guess I'll start first um, uh, and and say some quick things, and then and then I'll let Alice go because maybe she has some stuff to say as well. Um, uh, Thea to me is, um, especially in the first season, kind of bland and boring. Um, she plays the little bratty sister role pretty well, uh, I guess, but it's it doesn't add necessarily a whole lot, which is fine. I guess it doesn't have to. Um, but what I what I more have a problem with is um, Laurel. Who, uh, and I will say this uh, without apology, I hate the character of Laurel. It seems like uh, uh, we, we talked about Smallville earlier, uh, Matt, and I hated, hated, hated uh, Lana throughout the whole show. I, did, I, I wished she got off and the show got better for me when she left the show. And uh, no offense to, to the actress playing Laurel. I don't know if it's her or the character, how it's written. 
it, she plays the exact same role that Lana played in Smallville to me. Uh, whereas they they put this character in as uh, as a romantic interest, um, and then they try to turn them into something else, something more interesting, and it just falls flat on its face. It just doesn't work. Um, she's the most frustrating part of this part of the show for me, and maybe I feel more strongly than most people, and that's okay. Um, but I, I may it's I think it's partly portrayal and partly writing. Um, I just never buy her as a legitimate interest for Oliver. I never, uh, you know, it's terrible. Uh, I'm not even going to say it. Um, I just, I don't like her as a character. Uh, so I just, I wish, I wish she was gone. I wish she was just a season one memory, I guess I should say. Yeah, I, I would say, I don't think my um, reactions are quite as strong. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, Thea doesn't feel to have a lot of weight as a character in the series for me uh, other than as Daniel said the bratty kid sister um really she's she plays sort of like a sub subconscience uh to both her older brother and her mom you know she's the one who comes in and will say the things like well then you know don't you care about when i come home at night you should be a better mom kind of a thing you know she has those kinds of lines um which which sometimes are interesting and sometimes just fall really flat and again those are sort of the 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 eye roll moments um for me she is sort of a nod to a comic book character which i appreciate um but uh, in, in until <laughs> if we continue uh, this series, uh, she gets a little bit more weight and a little bit more to do. Um, she doesn't she doesn't feel very weighty, I guess is the way that I would say it. Laurel, uh, I have similar <laughs> problems with, uh, and I actually know a lot of people who have similar problems with Laurel. Um, Green Arrow ending up with Black Canary is one of those tent poles of the canon uh, that I have some attachment to just as a fan. Um, and it's, it's, it's hard for me <laughs> to imagine her as, as black canary in season one, perhaps in other seasons as well, but we're talking about season one. Um, and so it was challenging. And, and even though the guys in the show do as much melodrama around the freaking relationship, well, I can't believe that you slept with my sister. Well, I can't believe you slept with my girlfriend's brother. Well, I can't believe that you were like making out with my ex of who was my girlfriend's brother, blah, 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 blah. I mean, the boys do that as much as the girls do in this show. But for some reason, when she does it, it just, well, it's like nails on a chalkboard for me. And, and I don't know... You know, I feel like such a traitor to my sex uh, by saying that, but um, it, she, she, in this season especially, just scrapes me the wrong way. Well, hey, you feel your feels. You know, you don't <laughs> apologize for how you feel about a character. And I, you know, I think just having rewatched the season, uh, I was surprised that they both came off better than I remembered because mm-hmm. I remembered them being kind of like, you know. <laughs> Um, but, but I think too, it was, this is that I think with both of those characters, they've had a long game and they needed them to kind of start off at a place that was a shade unlikable (laughs) and, and, and then they're going to bring them forward because I think really by the time you get to season three and the very end of it, the characters are in completely opposite places, both, um, Thea and uh, 
both Thea and Laurel are in very different spots. And uh, I, it'll be interesting because I think if they continue to grow in that manner, people will remember it differently when they say rewatch the show because they'll see the progression. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think these characters specifically, both of them are really long game characters that they kind of have mapped out. Okay, this is what we're going to do with them in season one, season two, season three. And, and on um, and yeah they, they kind of start off as those whinier characters and everything um, but what I liked about the Thea character wasn't so much who played her or how she was played I actually like Willa Holland a lot who plays Thea but um, I really liked what she was to Oliver and you know uh, for him, it was all about trying to protect his sister and and keep her out of it and, and try and give her the life that he doesn't have um, and realizing in the end, and this goes to all the other seasons, but <laughs> it, it, that, that, that's not what she needed, you know? Um, and and the, the goal to sometimes protect people, we can end up hurting people instead. And so um, I, I just liked it that that story starts here. But it actually doesn't even get played out really all the way till the end of the third season. So when they're in a completely different place. So I'm with you guys. Those are the characters that it's harder to get into. But I especially too liked when uh, Colton Haynes comes on the show as is Roy. Um, and I really also like great him. abs. Oh, great also abs. Great of course. abs. Um, yeah, it's and he the way he plays that character. I think just uh, you immediately kind of feel for the guy, you know, a character that is a little bit cliched, you know, he's from the wrong side of the tracks and he falls in love <laughs> with the the hot girl that's from the right side of the tracks and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the way that he plays it, it, it kind of makes you buy it. So I have to give him a lot of credit for all of these characters taking these really melodramatic things that are happening for the most part and making you like buy it instead of just being like, Oh my God, get over it. You know, like that's how I felt for, you know, Smallville with Lana. I was with you, Daniel, by like season three, I was like, dude, (laughs) shut it. I don't care that Clark won't tell you about himself. Okay. It's for your own good. You know it. Um, anyway, so, so can I just really quick one thing I want to I mention, um, especially since Alice mentioned that she was such a huge fan of the character, and from and from someone like me who is coming vanilla at this, like super vanilla, um, I remember and especially when I was watching the first season and 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 you know Roy comes in, and it's like, oh we don't know wh- who's Roy going to be, uh, you know he's. He calls his sister Speedy, but there's also Arsenal. There's also the Red Arrow. Like it was really interesting to me to be like. First of all, I didn't even know these other characters existed. Like, Green Arrow needs to have a sidekick? Like, another guy that shoots a bow and arrow? Like, what's the point of it? But I also actually really grew to like that character a lot. I really, really like him. And uh, it was just... It was interesting to see how they're kind of... I don't know if they they have a long-term plan or they don't or whatever, but it's working out really well, like, how these characters kind of interweave and change and grow and leave and come back and all of this kind of stuff. Yeah, I would... So, you know, Speedy is his... You know, much like Batman and Robin, right, back in the 40s when the when, when it started. But I, I feel like, for the, for the most part, uh, that's one of the things that I uh, appreciate about Arrow uh, is it's... 
commitment to just being a good story mixed with its commitment to what has come before it. And I think when you're when you're delving into a fandom um, like a, a DC world or Marvel world or Lord of the Rings or whatever, you, you can't, it, you know, it's not like you can say, well, Legolas, I never liked that character. You know, we'll just have it be the Fellowship of the Eight, you know, and decide to leave him out, you know? I mean, like, you have to pay some homage to to what has come before you. And I feel like the show does a really nice job of, of really being its own, um, which I know is something that, that you talk about a lot, Matthew, and that you, you, you don't necessarily need that, but you need the show to be, you know, cohesive in its own, in its own world. I need a show to be that, but to also be aware of and be respectful of where it's coming from. And I feel like Arrow does that really well with nods like talking about Speedy or Arsenal or having Thea be an amalgamation of characters that I I can figure out where they're coming from. And I think from a fandom perspective, um, DC really got that right with the show because of all the people who really love the comics can key into that stuff and see it without it being a really obvious take on it, uh, which I think was just really, really smart of them. I think you just hit on something really beautiful and it's what DC has been doing is that tell your story, you know, um, and what DC did for the TV universe is unlike the shackles that it really put on Smallville, what they could and couldn't do, what they could and couldn't use. The majority of the toy box is there to play with, you know, they get to pull out all the toys and do pretty much whatever they want with them and almost nothing is off limits you know I think really the probably the only thing might be um maybe Batman but uh, they you know that might get a mention sometime too uh because Supergirl's about to come out and uh whether or not we see Superman play a large part, we at least see him in silhouette. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean he's he's a part of the... And he's a part of that universe. Yeah, he's a part a of the part. universe. <laughs> so, I, I think that's really, really smart that unlike Marvel, who's like, it's all connected, so our movies and our TV all has to be connected. No, the, the, the TV universe gets to play with all the toys. The movie universe gets to play with all the toys. And really, basically, we just get an awesome double dipping of, uh, you know, and, and, and really, in the end, what this feels like, this is Earth 2, and that's the prime Earth, you know, uh, on the films. And it's awesome because we all still care about Earth 2 in the comics, you know, or Earth 1, you know, uh, it, what they've been doing with the Earth 1 for series for D- DC. So... I think their understanding of the the multi universe uh, has really helped them in a way that Marvel hasn't quite captured yet, and that's been a huge success for them. I think is that storytelling, and it started back in some ways with Smallville of them having to make things up and fit for them in a way that worked on their show. And they brought that forward, that lesson, and they just ran with it with Arrow and now with Flash and everything else. So, uh, real, real quick, Matthew, um, you haven't had a chance to watch Supergirl, the the pilot, have you? No, I okay. I refused to watch it. I I was uh, I I'm firmly supporting the show, and I'm waiting till it comes. Okay, out fair enough. Officially. Fair enough. And I'm I'm not spoiling anything by saying this, but um, they. <laughs> They, all they say it's pretty much they call Superman the big guy or him 
or <laughs> the that dude. They, they don't, you know, it's very oblique references to Superman. Uh, but anyways, you know, you can cut that out. That's fine. Um, um, <laughs> but one thing I do want to say, actually, you know, it's interesting that you kind of went into that tangent because um, without trying to to go too far ahead into Arrow's timeline, um, DC is actually now stopping Arrow from playing with a lot of things. Um, they There was a storyline that they wanted to do with Harley Quinn that they've been rejected. Uh, they're no longer, I believe, allowed to go and talk about the Suicide Squad, um, which is what they had done before. Yeah. Um, and there's no more Deathstroke. You, you, there's no more. I'm pretty sure that's off limits to Arrow, the TV show as well. So I actually, I, I mean, I agree with you that for the for a time, they were allowed to do this kind of sandboxy kind of play with the characters. But now it's much more restricted, I think. It'll be interesting going forward, especially since the CW is growing, or DC, I should say, is growing their, right. t, their TV universe. Uh, and but their movie universe is growing exponentially as well. So now that they have to, they haven't been consistent with how they're going to handle that. So it'll be interesting to see once we have a a big screen version of Flash and a small screen version of Flash. What's going to happen? We don't know. Yeah, I think um, too. It's it'll be interesting because just in general for them, um, you know, they have created a pretty big universe for themselves on TV and have a lot of things to play with already. You know, so even if you don't get to do all the Suicide Squad stuff at this moment right now, um, it's not necessarily necessary because there's still tons of other things they're playing with. And it it doesn't really, I don't feel like it's going to feel too hampered. And who knows, after things settle down with that movie, they maybe get to play with some of those things again. And, you know, so that it, I, I think it just was the thing that really set them apart. And, you know, um, I, They've done a great job, I think, with just crafting that. And it's interesting. They, they, they're creating their whole own universe to play in, and it's really cool. Um, I, I did want to ask real quick before we get off the actors and everything, because Paul Blackthorne um, and uh, Colin Donnell plays um, Tommy Merlin, and then, and then Paul Blackthorne plays uh, Detective Lance. I wanted to ask you about them. And uh, because they play a major role in this first season, especially, I, I, I he's the oh gosh, now his name just left me. You just said it. Uh, who's who's just Paul. been a lot of stuff. Yeah, I really like him. The guy who plays Tommy. Um, I like him too. You know, he essentially gets coolered at the end of the season, um, <laughs> but. <laughs> um, you know and again for, for me I didn't dislike his character I didn't like his character but he had a very specific role to play which with which ends with him getting cooler as I said um, so there's there's a, a, a lack of depth I think for me with that character played against you know the the great jobs of the other characters again I don't think the guy did a bad job or anything like that he just had a very very specific trope role to play and he played it very well but that was kind of it for his character uh, but I do like the dad I like the cop dad um, <laughs> and I enjoy that actor uh, quite a bit so I, yeah. I enjoy him he's he's I, I, I echo those sentiments exactly I love Tommy was actually I, I didn't mind him I thought he was good uh, interesting kind of like like I guess what you'd call them brillionaires. I don't like their, their, their best friend billionaires. I don't know how you would say that. Um, I, I know that was kind of sloppy, but um, you know, it, that was interesting for, for a little bit. And then uh, I didn't, didn't, you know, he, 
he meets his fate at the end of the at the end of the season. But uh, I really do like Detective Lance a lot, um, even though his accent, which I knew was faked from the start, but I didn't know he has a like British accent. I think maybe. I, yeah, I think, he does. Yeah, yeah, which was like mind blowing to me when I first saw it. Um, because his fake, like, Bostonian-esque-ish accent always felt weird to me, but um, uh, I love that character. He's, like, he's the Jim Gordon of the Era universe, and I think he does yeah, a great yeah. job. And uh, he's actually one of my favorite characters on the whole show. I really, really, you know, just a man of conscience, kind of, like, trying to deal with these crazy situations happening. Uh, I, I really do like him a lot. And, and then his... <laughs> his two daughters get involved in this whole situation. It's like, I, I feel for the guy for sure. Well, one of the things that this show does um, from the very beginning of, of this season, and it just continues on to season two and three, but this first series arc, they are going 100 miles a minute every episode. Like, every episode is is pulling as much in and telling you as much story as possible and they're really not pulling any punches. They're not doing that thing where uh, I don't have to watch that episode on the rewatch. Like, all of the episodes have something to do with everything else that's happening. And, you know, that's the most important thing, I think, when you're creating a comic book TV show, especially like this, is it feels like a comic book series. It feels like the entire series you read in Arrow for a year, where all the issues fit together and then when you read them all again you see all the connections and everything like this is masterful comic book storytelling on a level that i mean smallville couldn't match at all even at its best i mean this is this is the thing that i think really set people on fire with this show when they first kind of got into it and then everybody was like this is the show you should be watching like Dana you were saying you read those articles of people saying Arrow is the best show that you're not watching go watch it you know because they never pulled the punches you know and they just went a million miles a minute and when you didn't think they were going to go there they went there and then they went 10 miles past that you know and and that's such amazing storytelling because in this ridiculous world that we live in where you know you maybe get 10 episodes to try and be a series and then you get canceled I think these comic book shows realized you either go for broke or you get canceled you know you go big or you go home and Arrow went big from the beginning and it just continued and and they obviously learned their lesson with Flash um, as well you go big or you go home because you don't know how long you're going to be out there so tell the stories that you want to tell now and figure out what you're going to do next season, next season. <laughs> because just tell the, the best story you can every single season. And I, that's what I love about this first season arc is that it's huge, it's expansive. And I never feel like if I'm watching one of the episodes, I'm like, oh man, I don't really, this is boring. Like that just doesn't happen with Arrow. So before we move off of actors... Uh, I would also like to mention, uh, in terms of fan service, the the amount of geek tastic guest stars <laughs> that oh, is yeah, in yes. season one is is sort of amazing. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I can't imagine that they actually did that on purpose. I'm sure they just hired who they thought would be best uh, for the role. But man, you got John Crichton, you've got Sergio from Helix, you've got Halo from Battlestar Galactica. You know, I mean, the list just goes on and on. 
on. I think that they've just kind of learned. And it feels like the people that are making these shows and in a lot of the ways that I respond to um, the Star Wars cartoons we've had, like uh, the Clone Wars and Rebels now. I love they're Rebels. They're fans, you know. They they know what we like. And, and even... even um, Greg Berlanti, I mean, he was talking about Supergirl. And he said, look, I've talked to the network. I want Supergirl to cross over with Flash and Arrow because I'm just like you. I'm a huge fan. That's what I want to see. But there are some things that are out of his control. And, and, and so hopefully that'll happen. But I love that. I love that they have the passion as much as we do to see this stuff be the best. And I think, you know, that's what makes... Arrow so successful its first season and even in the rewatch that I did I was surprised to just how well it all played out again even though I'd seen it before because there were still tons of things I was picking out that I just missed the first time around well for you guys uh, before we go anything else that just grabs you about the first season of Arrow that we didn't talk about um, things you liked or things you don't like and then uh, I guess we can go ahead and kind of give this a rating, especially as we're talking about the first season of a show that, well, is the basis for a universe now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I we we can't we can't not talk about shipping in relationship. Um, oh yeah, to Arrow. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, because again, as I said, you know, for me, one of the temples of of the of the Green Arrow universe is is uh, Black Canary and Green Arrow ending up together. And yet, uh, because Felicity has such great chemistry with Stephen Amell, um, I was a Olicity shipper, as they're called, um, from very early on. And uh, I saw Stephen Amell as a panel at Emerald City Comic Con last year. And he actually talked about it because I cannot tell you how many people in the audience asked him uh, about the Olicity ship and was anything really ever going to come to fruition of that and he he said that he kind of felt like it was his fault um that elicity shipping happened because he he remembered his experience on god i want to say some what was the show about housewives in la not reality tv but like regular shows desperate right? housewives desperate housewives i think he had a guest role on that or something so, well anyway some show was he a pool boy i don't what know the, what the but anyway so some show he was on and he just said that the 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 female actors were just so gracious to him and made him feel so comfortable that it was a really awesome experience and he said that he had he wanted to offer that um experience to emily and in doing so he thinks perhaps that he he exuded a little bit more charm and chemistry than perhaps was appropriate uh for the characters which i thought was really sweet frankly um so anyway i think it's very interesting that um there was such a response to to that chemistry that you know in the tumblr verse and the twitter verse and you know fandom verse in general that people were like oh no F Black Canary, he needs to end up with Felicity, <laughs> which I just thought was really uh, fascinating. I, I ship Felicity. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I loved them together. And, and what it was is that it was two equals. You know, what I loved about the relationship that, sh- that she has with Oliver is that she doesn't have to take his crap. You know, she doesn't have to be there if she doesn't want to. She chooses to be there. And... I think in a lot of ways, too, what's so cool about her character is that 
she sees the man Oliver is trying to be, and she's the one who believes that he can be, even when he doesn't believe it. And I think that makes for a great kind of redemptive story of having that person that believes in you no matter what, even when you make the terrible mistakes that Oliver makes. And this is another great thing about Arrow is that it's a show that allows the characters to make mistakes, but then they have to pay for them in the upcoming episodes. And that's what the entire show has been doing from season one all the way through season three is that it has really been building on the decisions that the characters make to kind of tumble out. And that's one of the things that they do with the island and then with coming home and it all plays together and that life is interconnected. You make one decision and it, you know, the opposite and equal reaction happens, you know. So I think that's what I really uh, loved about her and him together is that she's the one who believes in him when he doesn't believe in him. And there's not really anything that's more powerful, I think, than as a man, having that kind of woman by your side. Um, and for the most of the time, I think it's great, too, because he realizes he doesn't really deserve her. <laughs> but that's not what love is. It's not about deserving. It's about being offered a kind of a free gift. Um, and it's, 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 I, I really love how they play that. So I'm totally with you, Alice. <laughs> I, I, I will be the contrarian then <laughs> as I, as I often am. Uh, and I won't, and I'll try not to go too far outside here. Uh, but I am a, I guess you would call it a baricity shipper. Um, perhaps I believe that Felicity belongs with another CW superhero star. Um, but that is not something we find out in the first season of Arrow, so I don't know how far into that we want to get. I just, I'm just saying, I think she might have more chemistry with another DC superhero. That, that's all I'm gonna say. I'm just talking season one, Daniel. Season I'm just, one. I'm just saying. There's in the future, maybe she has more <laughs> chemistry. It's all I'm saying. It's a possibility. We're getting into that mission log ter- territory where you're like, maybe someday if another superhero shows Ex- up, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps, you know, perhaps. I don't know. Um, but you know, I'm. I mean, I, and what I think is so great about the show again is that they have created so many just different opportunities for themselves by being good writers. In the same way that I think Deep Space Nine did. Um, I don't think they always intentionally wrote things. I think they they wrote good stories that they were able to then go back and use later on because they realized, oh, that's kind of genius. That can connect to this. Um, I think that the Arrow writers are a little more interconnected and they're they're definitely probably planning things out a lot more. But at the same time, I think they're just planting all these great seeds and seeing what happens. Um, and with all great TV shows, who works best with each other, you know? And, and when you, that's the one thing I liked about this too, is that Alice, you have that question. Will Oliver, would he end up with black Canary or would he end up with Felicity? And this being their own show, they can go whichever way they want, you know? Um, and because they're still paying homage to, the the black canary story it doesn't necessarily have to end up at the same place in the same way right now that uh dc in their superman comics it's not lois and clark it's it's uh clark and diana um and they're you were gonna say lana i thought you were gonna say lana no (laughs) they're playing out a completely different storyline there because well honestly lois and clark's been done you know so show us something different and so i i think that's just one of those things where 
paying homage and doing your own thing. Um, they've earned that. They're earning that right, I think, from us fans to be able to do that. Uh, and like you, you're all giddy about the fact that, that these two characters play so well together and you like them. You feel bad for being like, oh, but that's not how it plays out in the comics. But I don't <laughs> care. You know, I, that's that's good and fun writing to me uh, with a comic book TV show. There was one thing I wanted to say. Um I know here we're on a we are on a Star Trek network and we and I ho- I am one of the hosts of a Star Trek podcast but I will say that to me um the television holy grail of science fiction is Battlestar and uh while I won't hold Arrow quite up to that level I will say that it does a lot of the same things that Battlestar does to get to get people who are not into the genre excited about the genre um, it's it's fast paced. It, it kind of it, it just kind of it, it doesn't it doesn't relent. It's constantly in your face. It's just it's it gets the people who are not exactly where we are most of the time uh, in regard to these kinds of uh, properties excited about watching them. And Arrow did that first, and 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 maybe did it best. And it was. Especially in season one, like, man, it was such a episode to episode, pound for pound, so good, so solid. Uh, it was just tremendous. And uh, it, it, in the same way that, that, that Captain America movies made me excited about a character I didn't really care for before, this made me excited for a character that I never had any connection to. I, I didn't care too much for Green Arrow. And now I'm like, whoa, what's going to happen? Well... Uh, now he he gets to fight the Flash in this episode. What's gonna? I, I know that's I know that's later on down the road. But I was excited and 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 he's like now I'm like now I'm a Green Arrow fan. I'm a fan of a guy running around in a Robin Hood costume and and shooting arrows at bad guys. I, that bow I mean, and arrows I, are cool, Daniel. They're cool. <laughs> I yeah, might Katniss be, rules. <laughs> I might be behind the curve on that one. Maybe it's just me, but uh, I can't, I really can't speak. Uh, too positively about uh, about Arrow season one for sure. Well, it's funny that you say that because when I was thinking about thinking about it, I would uh, what I thought to myself. It's so funny that you said it because I thought to myself, like, you know, season one Arrow is really really good. Okay, it's not Battlestar good, but it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really funny to me that you brought that up. Battlestar Galactica. I don't love the rest of the seasons, but that first season is one of the best seasons of television and one of the tightest plotted seasons of television I've ever seen. And talk about exciting. I mean, you literally... Edgy or the, the Yeah, you, you, the, the, the stupid Netflix is not going fast enough to get to the next episode <laughs> because it's... I mean, you, you really are on the edge of your seat with these characters. How are they going to survive? How are they going to get out of this? And Arrow takes what it means to be a comic book. And, you know, you maybe have... 25 pages in a comic book to actually tell a story and you need to do it quick and you need to get to the point in the story um and the issues where you don't you're like man that was (laughs) 3.99 you know like even on my ipad this is stupid um you get frustrated but the arrow learns the lesson and, and makes each episode important just like you said with the Battlestar Galactica I love that analogy so um you know, for me, I'd I'd rate this four and a half out of five full quivers because this is a this is an amazing 
I think, season and beginning of a rekindling of, of that love of comic book characters. And, and like you said, Daniel, it brought a character and the idea of um, comic book characters to people that, that maybe just, that wasn't their thing. But now it's the thing because have you seen that guy's apps? Yeah, yeah. Can I was I was gonna say can I give a rating because I didn't get to give one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I, I'm definitely gonna give this a 32 pack. Actually, you know what? You know what? I'm I'm gonna give it a full keg. This is a full keg of abs uh, for everyone involved. So <laughs> that's what I'm giving it. Well, what would? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I can follow that up with anything. <laughs> what am I gonna say? <laughs> well, Alice, uh, do you have a rating? I I don't know if anybody can, like you said, top Daniel's rating because I wow, I, I whatever I come over, they're just gonna sound weak <laughs> by comparison. So, <laughs> oh my god! All right, how about four point five out of five shots between the eyes? I don't know. <laughs> that'll work yeah um and i i what i love is that we can be so positive about something in geekdom and i, I think that the first season of arrow specifically for a lot of people you know depending on what they thought of the other seasons you know this season i think was strong and, and was. the fact that you had this um kind of reaction and it started a whole new movement on tv in a way that i think nobody was expecting um, I mean, God, they, they're doing the flash on TV now. I mean, they're, they did Gorilla Grodd. They, oh. they're, they're doing Legends of Tomorrow with Rip Hunter and time travel and Firestorm. I mean, the things that we're getting, this is the geek golden age. So, and I think we kind of owe it to the fact that Arrow worked so well its first season. If it hadn't, we wouldn't be getting this stuff. So, um, this show no matter what happens in the next seasons, as we talk about those later on um, down the road here in the 602 Club, um, we owe a great debt to, to the work that the writers did. Uh, Greg Berlanti, Andrew Kinsborough, and the rest of the guys, uh, n- nothing can be taken away from from the work that these people did. It's, it's fabulous. So um, it's been... <laughs> I, an absolute blast talking <laughs> about Arrow with you guys. Uh, I've loved the fact that we've laughed so much because that makes it so much more fun. But it's not the only thing that we have been talking about the past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. You know, watching it live to three months after the series ends to watch the Mirror Universe episodes. You're like, you're but like, uh, whoa, man! I heard season three got dark, but this is crazy. <laughs> it got darkly. Anyway. Oh, Earl Grey. We divide the ship into one of two ways. Port goes to port. <laughs> I better not see any starboard guys on the starboard phaser target practice. You guys know which side of the ship you're on. The orb. And so they cannot impart to him the knowledge that he needs in order to raise his son. And Worf doesn't want to raise a human son. Like you said earlier, he didn't get the son that he wanted. He wants to raise a Klingon son. The ready room. We knew that Spock was popular. We knew that Dad had some fans, but we were not prepared for what we saw happening 
in the social media, in the print media. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the New York Times reported that they got more hits on Dad's obituary than any other person personality in the history of the paper. To the journey! You're not a member of our race or a member of our culture, so we're going to say no. Hmm. That's kind of boring, and yet I don't know what else to do. Oh, screw you! <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Warp 5. I remember watching Broken Bow when... Enterprise first debut when I was in high school, and we're revisiting it now in full. And I had forgotten the fact that Future Guy had actually played an integral role from the get-go with Silic and the Sulaban, which we'll talk about later in the show. Commentary: Trek stars. It's all of these top-notch filmmakers, like people like Walter Murch, who literally wrote the book on editing. He, like those guys, all teaming up to make a big action kids movie, I think is really cool. The Six O Two Club. I think he's very much recreating that THX feel, and you may di- you may disagree with it. You may not think it's you know it's great, but it's on purpose. He, he wants that world to be that way. Let me just say, conceptually, I agree with that. In terms of execution, that's where I think he failed. Literary treks. It's amazing to me as I reread these stories how much of it I just kind of think of as Deep Space Nine these days, even though it wasn't part of Deep Space Nine, <laughs> you know, the the actual series. Axonar, the official podcast. It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment, it had its time, and there's a certain amount of charm still to that. But it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion. Women at Warp. So she definitely knows cats. I say that right off the bat. She knows cats and bones. Yes, definitely. Of course bones would get annoyed with all the cat fur. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Guys, check out these shows. Find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. Beyond, as Arrow would say. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, If you are an Apple user, guys, um, I was just looking at our stats the other day, and honestly, about 80% of people get their podcasts from some kind of Apple usage, whether it's their iPhone or whether it's just their computer or iTunes. or So the star ratings and reviews and, and, and all of that stuff do wonders for us. Um, and really, it's you guys that are going to be the people that to help us introduce Trek FM to people we'd never be able to find. So not only the star ratings or reviews, but man, share us on your social media. You, you know, you see us tweet that out or put that on Facebook. Share that with people because if you love it, heck, other people will probably love it. And it's it's you guys that can help this network grow in a way that we never can. And we appreciate you so much. Guys, if you're not an Apple user, who cares? Because we've got the shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. And of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file. Get the RSS link at the website as well. One of the most important things that that people that listen to the network can do can be to visit patreon.com slash trekfm and learn how they can support the network. Um, A lot of people I don't think realize just exactly what goes into producing a podcast. So I'm going to give you a quick rundown of what that takes. What goes into making a podcast is this. Uh, Usually we have to have a recording time. 
and uh, we have to have the recording software, which costs money, and we have the platform that we record um, everything with. We we use the, a, a go-to-meeting type thing, a thing called Zoom. So we all get together. We all record our audio. All that audio gets compiled and put together and edited together on some software Um Put all that together with the music and all that stuff to make it sound as good as we do. Clean everything up. Make sure it sounds good for you guys. That takes, you know, hours, if not more, to put all to that together. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we put the artwork together. Then we put all that stuff together. And finally, the show has to get all put together and published on the website and all the different places that we do that. Um, Richard helps me with that, um, making sure everything looks good. And then it finally gets published and then we put it on social media and that's when it comes out to you guys. There's a million other steps that happen. All of that stuff, it costs money, it takes time. And without you guys, we can't make that happen. And that's what's so important about Patreon.com. You can check out all the ways that you can support us financially. And you can see what we're trying to reach milestone-wise. And we've got some great perks for you. We are working on some amazing things just to come to Patreon supporters. I already have my associate producers who get your early access to content, though. You can get exclusive content. You can sit in our Patreon roundtables that we've been, we've been starting to do. And so... Go to patreon.com slash trekfm. Look it all up. If you have any questions, just let one of us know. And we appreciate you guys so much because honestly, without you, it's just not worth doing. And so uh, I wanted to say thank you, especially to Ken Tripp, who is my associate producer here on the 602 Club, as well as uh, C. Brian Jones and Norman C. Lau, who are both my executive producers. If you would like to contact us, guys, I'd love to hear what you think of Arrow Season 1. Um, send us a contact, trek.fm slash contact. You could leave us a voicemail. I'd love to hear your thoughts that way. Look in the sidebar on the show page. Just go to speedpipe.com slash trek.fm. We're on Twitter at trek.fm, of course, or at Facebook, facebook.com slash trek.fm. Both of those places, great ways to share the shows with your friends on your social media or your Twitter or your Facebook account. Uh, great ways to help the shows grow. And of course, the Babel Conference, our listeners-only discussion group, have so much fun talking to you guys there. Check us out. Search Babel in the Facebook search field or go to the website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. Now, Daniel and Alice, I am so glad that you guys joined me tonight. I had a blast. Again, I, I love when you guys are on, and it means the world to me that you just take some time out to talk these geeky things with me, because otherwise, I think listeners would be really bored <laughs> just listening to me. But uh, Alice, where can everybody find you online? And of course, tell them about Educating Geeks, a podcast they need to be listening to. <laughs> the the podcast you're not listening to that you should be? Um, exactly. <laughs> So we, uh, I, I would, first of all, I would like to, to support uh, what you said, Matthew, in terms of your, uh, of people going to Patreon uh, and supporting you guys, because, you know, uh, we've learned a lot um, from the folks here at Trek, Trek FM in terms of, you know, how to put together a good podcast and what it takes. And you, you may start out thinking that's this really easy, quick thing to do. And then once you get into it, you realize, oh my gosh, no, there's all of this work uh, and equipment and whatnot that you need. Um, so I'd really encourage you to to get over there to Patreon and support these guys because they do a really great job and, and uh, they deserve your support if you enjoy what they're doing. 
So uh, I'm one of the executive producers of Educating Geeks, and much like the folks here in the 602 Club, we get together and talk about uh, geeky things. Um, what we like to do is to invite someone who has never experienced a piece of geekdom in to experience it for the first time, and then we have a discussion about what the first-timer's experience is against what the superfan's experience is. Uh, and we do that twice a week over at EducatingGeeks.com. Awesome. And like I said, if you're not listening to Educating Geeks, why? Because <laughs> Daniel and I love it, and we give it our stamp of approval, so go check them out. Daniel, of course, tell everybody where they can find you on the network and online as well. Yeah, and, and before I even do that, I will I will exactly echo Matthew's statements. Uh, Educating Geeks gets my stamp of approval as well. I'm a, I'm a subscriber, and I love the show. So good. The ladies are awesome. They're talking about interesting things. Uh, it's it's amazing. So it's a great show. Everybody should listen to. But here on Trek FM, people can find me on Earl Grey, the the next the the next generation, the <laughs> next generation dedicated <laughs> the La Tra- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, the Star Trek the Next Generation dedicated podcast here on the network with my co-host Philip and Darren, um, where we talk TNG uh, every week and it's fantastic and we love it and you can find me there and you can also find me on twitter as well um and my handle there is one up dan that is the number one not the word well guys of course you can find me on twitter at matt rushing zero two i do the orb with christopher jones where we talk exclusively about deep space nine love doing that show with him it's so much fun i'm on literary treks with dan where we're talking about the books and the comics of star trek in fact it's the best place to get quote-unquote new Star Trek. We talk about the new uh, comics that come out. We talk about the new books that come out. A lot of times we have the authors on to talk about those new books and and get their thoughts on the creative process and and kind of the behind the scenes. Check us out at Literary Treks. Um, Dan and I love doing the show together. And then, of course, you can find me on my own personal blog at 42lifebetween.wordpress.com. I just do, I do movie reviews, book reviews, and things that, you know, just might not fit on, say, like a Trek FM style show and I'm just my own thoughts in general so if you care at all hit me up there and let me know what you think about some of the things that I've written thank you so much for joining us I really appreciate it and you guys come back now you hear you hear